continue our study on Colossians 3, 16 and 17. <clears throat> Let me ask before we begin, do you want to see Christ? When we sing that, is it something that resonates in your heart as a true confession? Show us Christ. Reveal your glory through the preaching of your word. That's what we're doing. We're not here because we're trying to check something off a box or um, pat ourselves on the back that we've accomplished some outward form of religiosity. We're gathered here to feed on the food prepared for us by his apostles in his holy word so that we may see him. I pray that that would be your motive this morning. Colossians 3, rather, verses 16 and 17. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. Father, please make this the case in us. Help us understand what it is that your Apostle Paul has commanded us for our good. Help us see it clearly. Help us have the will to obey. And may we be a church marked by the word of Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to review for you what this series has been so far. The first sermon in the series, we just tried to answer the question, what is the Word of Christ? When we come to a passage like this with such significance for all of our lives, and a phrase like that is just laid out for us, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, uh, we need to know what he's talking about. Is it just the Bible? Is it just our favorite parts of the Bible? The verses that have coalesced in our minds and functioned as a Bible within the Bible for us? Is it just the gospel or how a person gets saved? And our answer was, no, it is not really any of those. It is the full message of God, all of his communication to us, understood in and through the person and work of Jesus. That is the word of Christ. That's what must dwell in us richly. The second sermon in the series, we answered a more foundational question, why should we do any of this anyway? What, what's, what's the motive? Why, does, why should this be the case? Is it just so that we can be theologically astute? Is it just so that we can answer everyone, any of their oppositions to the truth of the Bible? No, it is because we celebrate the love of God. Letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly The main motivation is because God has done something, and in response to what God has done, we worship by letting His Word dwell in us richly. And last week we looked at this question, what does it even mean to let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly? What what imagery, what words is He using to try and help us understand what it means? Does it mean just to know it? For you, yourself personally, to understand what this message is, to know the truth? Does it mean that we all become, uh, you know, theologians or theology nerds like 
pastor might be. No, the imagery is that of a dwelling place. Let, let the word of Christ take up residence among you. I use the illustration of a lodge, or if you are a part owner in an Airbnb, you're, you're to let the word of Christ take up residence richly in your midst, among you all. And we addressed last week a few of the hows in our attitude and posture. The first is, you need to know what the word of Christ is, right? Alluding back to the first message, you need to know and celebrate and rejoice in the love of God for you, or you won't want to do any of this. And then thirdly, I just said, you, you, you just have to, there's no other way to say it than that you have to want the word of Christ to dwell in you richly. It's not something you stumble into. So now we come to some of the how that Paul himself gives. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. So they're participles. And a participle gives shape to the central command. Do this by doing this, is essentially what he's saying. So here's my attempt to translate verse 17 in a way that gives, I think, the the flavor of this exhortation. Let the word of Christ take up residence in you all together, richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And I want to make clear and just allude to uh, a, few, a few things. <coughs> One is that the smoke is terrible outside, and it's doing a number on me and several others in our congregation, so I apologize in advance. So, uh, a distinction. If you're look, depending on the translation you're looking at, it will render the verse a couple of different ways. And one is, uh, this is the NASB and the King James, it takes the singing as the main way that we do the teaching and admonishing. So, it's, it's let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. How do we do that? Well, we've got to teach and admonish one another. And how do we teach and admonish one another? By singing. But I don't think that's the way we should take it for a number of reasons. And if you got the email, uh, I try to send those out before, uh, during each week to help prepare us for the sermon. Because if singing is the primary way that we're to be teaching and admonishing one another, then we shouldn't really talk about teaching and admonishing one another. We should just skip to talking about teaching and just really fill up the meaning of, teach, of, of, of singing so that we can teach and admonish through it. But my answer, and I think the ESV lends itself to this answer, is that the singing, the songs, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and the teaching and admonishing are two ways that are very interrelated that we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. My hope is that you see, uh, through what we're going to discuss today, that we just simply can't do everything we're supposed to do in teaching and admonishing one another through singing. It just can't be done. And just a side note, uh, even though the phrase in all wisdom occurs first in Greek, um, it modifies both verbs, so we're going to follow the flow of the sentence in that way that makes sense to an English speaker. Okay? So, that's some of the review and some of the translation stuff, and now we get to it. The first questions, or pair of questions that we're going to answer is, what is biblical teaching? And in a related manner, what is its content? What is biblical teaching? 
and what is its content? And I would just say at the outset, before we get into answering those questions, you should know that this command is for you. If you're a Christian, if you call on the name of the Lord, the command before you that you see on the page or on your device, teaching and admonishing one another, that's for you. Whether you think of yourself as a teacher or not, it's to you. It's to the whole church. So answering these questions, what is biblical teaching? What is Paul even saying? And what is the content of said teaching? These are important questions. And the word for teaching here is translated in the vast majority of situations as teaching. It's where we get the term didactic. Uh, It's the same root word, though in this sense it's not negative at all. And keep in mind the objective of the teaching, and, and keep in mind the structure of the sentence, the objective of the teaching and the admonishing is to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. That's why we should be doing this. It's not just so that, other, uh, that everyone um, attains a certain level of theological competency. It's so that the word of Christ dwells in and among us richly. So that objective clarifies everything for us and helps us answer both of these questions. What is biblical teaching and what is the content? And let's just deal right now with the objection. And maybe you're thinking right now, well, I'm not a teacher, much less a Bible teacher. How does this apply to me? And understand, in the Bible, there are two senses of the word teaching, which is why James can say this, not many of you should become teachers. And if that's all the Bible said, you can say, well, there we go. This verse doesn't apply to me. I don't need to become a teacher because not many of us should become teachers, so I'll just go along my merry way. But the author of Hebrews, as I hope you remember, says, by now, you should all be teachers. Is the Bible speaking out of both sides of its mouth? No, one is referring to the teaching position, I think, and one is referring to the inevitability that your life teaches something. In word and deed, you're teaching something. So here's my definition of biblical teaching. Biblical teaching then is instruction of any legitimate kind, that's an important phrase, that helps others come to understand the word of Christ. You see how the objective of let the word of Christ dwell in you richly helps clarify what teaching is, right? If it doesn't cause that to happen, then it's not necessarily legitimate Bible teaching. You can talk about any number of things, and the objective is not letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly, so that doesn't really count. So, biblical teaching then is instruction of any legitimate kind that helps others come to understand the word of Christ. Paul encourages Timothy this way. He says in in 1 Timothy 4.16, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. In other translations, it summarizes, Keep a close watch on your life and your doctrine, or on the things you do, your behavior and your teaching, your speaking. Both are teaching. So the content of biblical teaching... This is the answer to the second question. The content of biblical teaching is any truth presented in the proper way. Any truth presented in the proper way, which is to make Christ preeminent. We could go back to chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, to see that, that God's purpose in creation is to make Christ preeminent in all things. 
So you haven't fully communicated the truth about any subject unless you've shown how it relates to Christ. The Puritans understood this. Jesus and his parables show that everything, even in the created order, is about Christ and about his kingdom. There's this shadow versus reality dynamic that you exist in every single day. The greatest purpose and meaning and and essence of a tree isn't just being a great tree. It's about the Lord Jesus. You can say that about everything. We don't have time to discuss that. If you're really interested, uh, you can read Edward's book, Shadows of Divine Things. He understood all of creation to be pointing to the Lord Jesus. So consider that. You have not come to understand the truth of any matter unless you've discovered how it relates to Christ and, until you, and, and unless you have some indication of how it makes Christ preeminent. Just as in a little example, you can do a lot of teaching about marriage and say nothing about the relationship between Christ and the church. A lot of practical advice, a lot of good insights here and there. A lot of tricks and tactics, right? Helpful tips, guys. Don't forget certain dates on the calendar. But you can say a lot that is helpful that has nothing to do with Christ. So you haven't really come to, no matter how good your marriage is, you haven't come to understand it unless you relate it and understand how it is related to Christ and makes him preeminent. That's just one example. They're innumerable. So, Teaching one another the word of Christ is the responsibility of us all. We are all supposed to be helping each other understand and fully embrace the word of Christ as we communicate truth with Christ and his preeminence at the center. So when we read this participle, teaching, we'll get to admonishing. When you you read that word, teaching... um, This is one of the ways that we make sure that the word of Christ takes up residence in us richly. We shouldn't just merely think then about the sermon and Sunday school or your small group discussion or your D group discussion. It is something that is a 24-7 task. The command is to all of us, so it's not just the teacher, the preacher. And secondly... You need to remember that it's all of life. I want to demonstrate this principle because I really want you to get this, especially you young people in here. You need to understand this. Let me just ask a question. Do you remember the scene when Jesus feeds the 5,000 and the 4,000? Do you know what he did before he fed the 5,000 and the 4,000? He taught them. But we don't know the content of those teachings. It just says, it, it, it just kind of alludes to he taught them many things about the kingdom, but we don't have any quotes from those lessons. So when did he stop teaching? When did Jesus stop teaching in those two instances? Was it when the message or lesson ended? Because what the Holy Spirit inspired the apostles to record in the events of the life of Christ is what happened afterwards, what he did how he worked the miracle to feed the 5,000 and the 4,000. Teaching for the Lord Jesus never stops. It's not just the content of the Sermon on the Mount, so to speak. Both are teaching. Don't, don't hear anything different. I'm not, I'm not saying that we, we only teach through action and that words are unimportant. Both are teaching. 
What I'm doing right now is teaching. But every action, every word, even our body language is teaching something. Is it the example of Christ to do that? Of course it is. Everything he did. Some of our most cherished things that he taught us were by example. You know, he, he didn't have to step aside and say, and now let me give you five points uh, of theology on compassion. He just showed compassion. He's always teaching. And you are always teaching. Every one of you. And let me be clear again. You must have words. You must use words. It's word and action together. Because that's the example of the Lord Jesus. But consider this. No matter how old or young you are. If you don't take on a teaching position in the church. Or in, career, in your career. Or you never have. Or if you don't think that you're particularly gifted in teaching, you are still teaching in all of your waking moments and even in some of your not waking moments by what you say and then whether it is backed up or not by what you do. You're a full-time teacher. The question is, what are you teaching? Is it the Word of Christ? Or is it what I want to get out of life? Is it the word of Christ? Or is it I hope that my friends think I'm really something? Is it the word of Christ? Or is it I want to get as much fun and enjoyment and pleasure as I possibly can? Is it the word of Christ? Or is it I want to get the most respect and admiration that I possibly can? Your life teaches something. If someone, let, let me ask it another way. What is your life an advertisement for? If all someone had to go off of was your life, what would they be convinced to buy or to sell, as the case may be? Would it be the American dream or to be the word of Christ? Would it be isolation and protectionism, or would it be the Word of Christ? Would it be a particular political persuasion, or would it be the Word of Christ? Would it be adolescence is a great time of little responsibility, or would it be the Word of Christ? Your words and deeds convey a value system. Put very simply, if your words and deeds do not coalesce to teach the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, then you, my friend, are using your life to teach falsehood. You're a false teacher. What your life is teaching, whether you mean it or not, is that Jesus Christ is not that interesting. But the truth is, He is. Is your life proving that? We understand this. It doesn't matter what you say you believe in your heart or what doctrinal statement you sign off on. It doesn't matter what you say to your first date. If you get there to eat the meal at the nice restaurant and you're just scrolling on your phone, what are you saying? What are you teaching in that moment? That the other person is not that important or impressive or interesting. 
Just a little bit of homework. I was planning to go through this. Philippians 3, 7 through 20. Just, just try to put yourself in the heart and mind and eyes of Paul and understand what he's saying and his motivations. And then just ask the question, is this me? Is this me? Do I even want this to be me? And if you can't answer yes to either of those questions, or, or maybe one even further, if you say, I, I don't yet want it to be me, but I want to want it to be me, if you can't answer yes to any of those questions, you need to do some serious soul searching of whether or not you love the Lord Jesus at all, or you just love his benefits. And I just want to appeal to <clears throat> those in this room who may not know the Lord or believe in him. He's worth it. You may have not seen in many of the Christians that surround you much evidence that he is worth suffering the loss of all things, as Paul says. Sometimes those who trust in him don't give the best example of that. We don't teach a consistent gospel with our lives. We are so often drawn away by the appeal of the flesh and the appeal of the possessions of this life and the pride of life. But trust me, he's worth it. He is that glorious and that good that even if it costs you the suffering of loss of all things to gain Christ, is all worth it. Brothers and sisters, please teach a consistent gospel. Show by your decisions, your deeds, that he is in fact worth it. In summary, your life is teaching something right now. Yes, this very moment in this room, even as you listen to the word of God being preached, in your life, the sum total of it is teaching something. And the command of God here in this text is that it should teach others the word of Christ. And so very closely related to that, it should teach that this message, this word of Christ, is supremely valuable because Christ is supremely valuable. Is that your life? But not just teaching. Teaching and admonishing. What is biblical admonishing? What is its goal? This word isn't as simple or as easy as the word teach. It doesn't occur many times in the New Testament, but it's a big word. It's an important word. Nusateo. I said that right. <clears throat> I won't go into all the reasons why this is a very important word, but if you're even vaguely familiar with biblical counseling, you know that this word is very important. I want to give you the, the different passages where uh, the biblical authors use this word to give you a sense of what it means. It's translated in two different ways, typically either warn or admonish. So I want to read to you the passages of Scripture that relate, that use it, and maybe it'll give you a sense of what it means. Acts 20, verse 31. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. Notice he doesn't say with singing, right? So just a funny comment of why I don't take it the other translation way. He admonishes them with tears. He's pleading with them. Romans 15, 14, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct, admonish, warn one another. 
You see, he says, I'm, I'm, I'm confident that, that you have good enough preachers to instruct you. He says, I'm confident that you, you, the Roman congregation, are able to instruct, admonish one another. 1 Corinthians 4.14, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Those of us who had godly fathers know exactly what this experience is like. Paul says, but to admonish you as my beloved children, a father, maybe even those of you who are adults, and your father comes and says something very short, but gently, but firmly, all of it at the same time, and it it can change your life. And then Colossians 1.28, the same book that we're in, he says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone. That's the same word. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. So we see it's, it's almost a perfect overlay with, the, with 3.17. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5.12 We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. It just ties in perfectly with everything we saw about the role of leaders in Hebrews 13. Respect those that admonish you. And sometimes, and this is very difficult, especially in our spheres today, modern American Christianity, typically what happens is that people are okay with everything a pastor has to offer, and then when it shifts to admonition, they're done. The moment it changes from just a proclamation to general, all y'all out there, to you, specifically brother or sister, here is some admonishing. People aren't interested in that. Because the flesh hates it. I don't like it. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, just a few verses later, is we urge you, brothers. So now he's talking to the whole church. Admonish the idol. So if someone's lazy, (laughs) if someone's just not willing to work, if they're not eager for any type of thing, they have no passion, they have no zeal, and they're just wasting their life and letting all their time go down the drain for nothing more important than vanity. What are, what are the kinds of things you need to say to them? What is the flavor of that? It's like, it's like a coach coming over to a position group on the sideline, getting down on his knees and saying, what's the problem, guys? Get it together. That's admonishing. It's spurring. It's the idea of spurring someone who is idle. Second Thessalonians. So, so the Thessalonian congregation needed a lot of this admonishing. Okay? Three instances in the Thessalonian uh, correspondence. 2 Thessalonians 3, 14 through 15. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him. Same word, admonish. Warn him as a brother. That's a startling passage. Is it not? Would you be okay with that kind of activity if someone is not walking in step with the apostolic witness of what the truth about Jesus is, have nothing to do with them? And to warn them, not not harshly, but to warn them as a brother? So notice, 
we, based on these verses, these aren't just to teachers and preachers and pastors and people who are biblical counselors and whatnot. We might say, well, I'm not a counselor. I, I can't admonish anyone. Uh, have you seen my life? I don't, I don't have it together. This is the command of God for you to admonish your brothers and sisters with the same force of thou shalt not murder. And in fact, the body of Christ being willing to obey this specific command to admonish one another is how the people of God obey commands like thou shalt not murder. And I would, I'll, I'll spare you the details of stories I know. If someone had said something earlier, if someone had taken this seriously and admonished them, so much pain and loss and suffering would be avoided. If you see something, say something. So what does this mean? What, what, what does this word admonish mean? It's something north of exhort and south of rebuke them sharply. Okay, Like Paul says to Timothy, or Titus rather. So, but it can morph. It, it, can, it can increase in intensity and decrease in intensity based on who you're admonishing and how serious the situation is. It's instruction with the intention to alter thinking and acting. Literally, the word means to put in mind, gently but forcibly, putting something in someone's mind, alerting them to something. Have you ever been in a parking lot and you're just driving slowly down, you're not exceeding 15 miles an hour and someone just starts backing out really quickly? You lay on the horn real quick. That's, that's admonishing. You're putting into their mind the idea, if you keep going the way you're going, you're going to cause problems. They don't need to know what all the problems are. It might be a person. It might be a cart. It might be another car. But you're alerting them, putting it in their mind to stop. Now. We don't have, I don't think, and if, if you're able to do this, please don't show us. Uh, I don't think we have anyone in our church that can whistle really loudly. I wish I had the ability sometimes on Sunday nights when we need to pray before food because people are hungry. So my uncle, though, he was a youth minister and runs a camp, and he can whistle, and it will, it will break windows, not literally, but it, it sounds that loud. That is admo- admonishing. You're just goofing off and you're a group of friends and you're doing whatever and you're talking. He does it at family get-togethers as well. And then Uncle Andy whistles. Everyone goes silent. It puts it into our minds. Oh, it's time for something else now. It's time to eat, time to pray. Someone's got something to say that's really important. That's admonishing. It's also like the flashing lights when a construction zone comes up and there's lanes that are out, bridges that are out, and the flashing lights puts it in your mind that things are not what you think they might be. And you need to divert your thinking and your acting in order to avoid trouble. We see an example of admonishing, I think, in in the situation with, with Peter and Paul, do we not? Go ahead and turn there. Galatians chapter 2. I think this is, a, this is such an amazing example of admonishing. I want you to notice a few key words about it. Galatians 2, beginning in verse 11. But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. 
But when I saw, you can underline, I don't care, you've got to get this. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? When he saw that their conduct was not in step with the gospel, that's what you need to see and be alerted to and be well enough informed to know whether or not your brothers and sisters' lives is either in step with the gospel or not. And you need to be aware of the gospel enough to know. So what's the goal? Well, let me give you an expanded definition of biblical admonishing. It is alerting a brother or a sister that their life is not in step with the word of Christ. What's the goal? What's the goal of biblical admonishing? I want to be very clear here. The goal is not to bludgeon each other or to be a fault finder. Okay? There, there can be a lot of that, right? And sometimes we can make our own conscience and our own convictions law for everyone else. Well, I've come to this position of, authority, uh, of wisdom and I've, I've learned these things and I've come to be settled on these issues in this way and then we can judge everyone by whether or not they agree with us on those things. And we can just be fault finders and it just beats everyone down. That's not what we need or want in this church. Love covers a multitude of sins. We're, to, we're commanded to overlook offenses do not judge lest you be judged, for with the same severity with which you judge, it will be judged to you. That's terrifying. Essentially, God's saying, you want to be a fault finder to your brothers and sisters? I'll be a fault finder on Judgment Day. God delights to show more mercy more than He delights to show wrath and judgment. Otherwise, there would be no warrant for the cross. If he got the same amount of glory from wrath and judgment as with grace, there'd be no reason to go to the cross. He would rather show you mercy, dear sinner. But still, we must admonish, we must warn and rebuke and exhort. Why? Because the goal of the admonishing and warning and exhorting and all the other words the Bible uses, the goal is to help your brothers and sisters return to Christ. And yes, you can stray from Christ in this Christian walk. Let me give you an expanded definition of it. To help your brothers and sisters in Christ return to living consistently with the Word of Christ. So, as I said, you have to know the Word of Christ. You need to know this full, robust gospel in order to see where your life and the life of your brothers and sisters do or, or do not line up with it. And then secondly, you need to know your brothers and sisters well enough to know whether or not their life really lines up with the truth of the gospel or not. Not by the, the, the facade that we can put on on a Sunday morning. That typically always lines up with the word of Christ. It's easy. It's like in a dating situation. Anyone can put on a front for six months, right? And be on your best behavior. In short, you must be a continual student of the word of Christ and a continual student of the life of your brothers and sisters. And I, I honestly think church culture tries to get the first one right. There's a lot of teaching and instruction and stuff that can go on in, in church life. But typically I think churches struggle 
to be students of the lives of your brothers and sisters. And that really, I think, shows that we don't get the first one right. If we really understood the significance and the priority and the primacy of the word of Christ, then we would, in fact, be good students of the lives of our brothers and sisters to know if it lines up with it. It's as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.15. This verse typically comes up in issues of salvation and assurance. Paul says this, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Did you know that all the verbs in that verse are plural? Test yourselves. You each be about the business of testing one another's faith to see if in fact you are really in the faith. It's not just reflexively about yourself. That's not even the intent of the passage. But we shouldn't just leave it at the test. you got to say something. As I said earlier, if you see something, say something. You need to urge. You need to plead. You need to teach. You need to admonish. With tears, even. Or do you not understand what is at stake? The analogy might be of a kid running out into the road full of traffic. And all you do is say, well... It's too bad. If only their parents had spent more time telling them about the dangers of the road, lamenting the situation. No, any sane person goes and grabs the child while yelling at them to get out of the road. The spiritual threat that is afoot is more dangerous than a semi-truck on a road in that scenario. As a pastoral aside, I will die on this hill. Just know. I've planted my flag here. Those of you who have been here for a while know that I talk a lot about the one another's. We spend a lot of time in Hebrews 3, 12 through 14. I, I'm not budging. No matter how costly financially or relationally it becomes. I will not minister in a way that gives the impression that you can be a faithful Christian unless you find some way, some way to do this for one another. Everyone is different. Our lives are different. Our abilities are different. Our gifts are different. Our free time is different. Our discretionary time is different. But you have to obey Jesus. There's just no getting around it. We're comfortable with the verses that we've let rattle around in our brain. And then when we we encounter a passage like this, teach and admonish one another, we're like, well, leave it to the professionals. I mean, it's it's in the church covenant, for goodness sake, okay? I look back on my life and my friendships, especially those in seminary, with a lot of regret. If you see something, say something. Souls are at stake. We can talk as much as we want about evangelism, and I've got a free evangelism book out there for all of you, and I think we need to emphasize telling people who don't know the gospel about the gospel, but there are people in our midst who will not stand with us with the sheep on judgment day. We'd be fools if we think otherwise. 
And remember, with all patience and gentleness, okay, I'm not saying you've got a license to be a Christian bully. Okay, follow the example of Jesus. He did this with everyone, especially those that were most dear to him. So, why do we need both? Why do we need teaching and admonishing? Hopefully it's clear already why we need both teaching and admonishing. But I'll give you six reasons very quickly. Three about uh, from the perspective of teaching without admonishing, and three from the perspective of admonishing without teaching. And, and we, we need them together. We need them both. And that's why I think Paul uses the conjunction and in between them. It's teaching and admonishing, two sides of the same coin, okay? So teaching without admonishing teaches that what is being taught is not worth much. Let me say that again because I know it's worded oddly. Teaching without admonishing teaches that what is being taught isn't worth much. If you go to a lecture on theoretical physics in alternate universes, uh, the applicability of that lecture is not going to be very big. It, it, I mean, next time you're, you're having dinner or having an argument with, with a friend or whatever, uh, theoretical physics in an alternate universe isn't typically going to help you very much. No one's going to come to you and say, hey, weren't you paying attention in that lecture? But if you're going into war, into battle, and someone is instructing you how to open your parachute, in a very short moment, maybe a few days, a few weeks, whenever you're deployed, you're going to need that knowledge. So if someone sees you not paying attention or, or you're not taking the notes you're supposed to or you're not following the instructions as you ought to, someone ought to say something and the instructor, if they're worth their salt, will. Teaching without admonishing, if, if we don't say anything, then what we're teaching by not coming and saying something is that what we've just taught isn't worth much. So if you don't admonish after teaching the word of Christ and teaching the truth about Jesus, then you're saying the truth about Jesus isn't that important. Number two, teaching without admonishing gives a false sense of mastery. What if you never had a grade, ever, on any test, in any subject? Would you know how well you did or understood the material? And you just graduated without any GPA? It doesn't matter. I, I attended the classes. Do you know what they talk? Well, doesn't matter. They're, they're having me walk. Teaching without admonishing feedback and saying, here's where it doesn't line up, friend, gives a false sense of mastery. So I'm just not impressed anymore when someone has a lot of theological understanding. Because you can have a lot of that and have not mastered the content if it doesn't line up with your life. Number three, teaching without admonishing passively denies judgment day. You understand that? If we teach, if we talk about the word of Christ, we say, oh, how great all these truths are, and then we don't admonish anyone, we're saying judgment day isn't real or has no practical implications to our life at all. On the other hand, let's look at it from the opposite perspective, admonishing without teaching is abusive. Admonishing without teaching is abusive. 
If there's no knowledge there, if there's no understanding of what it is we're being admonished to be, then you're just bludgeoning someone. John says this in 1 John, which, by the way, if you want an example of a loving, careful, joyful, stern, just explosively glorious example of admonishing, just read 1 John. But he says this, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth, the reason he can appeal to them and admonish them is because they know the truth. They've been instructed in the way. They've heard the apostolic doctrine. They know the truth about Jesus, so he can admonish them. So there's this principle of, of, uh, as it were, maybe saving your dry powder for a time when your admonition can be really effective. Paul sa- uh, the Proverbs say a word fitly spoken is like, uh, apples of gold and bowls of silver, I think is how it says it. Secondly, admonishing without teaching is just simply lazy. You've got to invest. You have to pay your dues into someone's life, teaching them the word of Christ, being an example to them of what the word of Christ is before it will matter at all if you start to try and, and admonish them. And number three, admonishing without teaching allows for a disconnect between your life and the expectations you have for others. If all you're interested in is just telling truth and speaking truth and making sure everyone knows the truth, then your life can be a shamble and be completely out of step with the word of Christ because as long as I get people to understand the truth, it's fine. But if you take on the responsibility of teaching and admonishing, then your life has to line up with what you teach. So, what does it mean to do these two things in all wisdom? Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. In all wisdom. Do these things in all wisdom. Listen, there are just about 10,000 ways of doing these things that are not of wisdom. And many of you have probably suffered under the hand of those who tried to teach you something or admonish you in some way that it just simply was not in wisdom. And that statement can be discouraging if you really think about it. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. Really, Paul? I mean, James says if any of you lacks wisdom, so, you know, that's all of us. So you've got to teach and admonish in all wisdom. So how do we do that? What does Paul mean by all wisdom? Has he, you know, by any chance made reference to wisdom already in Colossians? Yeah. Other than the verse we've already mentioned today, the big one that should immediately come to our minds is from chapter 2. So go there. Colossians 2, the second half of verse 2 through 3. I'll just read all of verse 2. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You want to exhort, teach, or admonish someone in all wisdom? It's found in Christ. You see how this, the idea loops back in on itself again. We're, we're to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. That means that the teaching and admonishing 
however we do it, must be in and through and for Jesus Christ himself. Paul is even more clear on this point in 1 Corinthians 1, 22-24. This is what he says, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. How might you teach and admonish in all wisdom? Center it, put it through Depend on Jesus Christ in doing all of it. To teach and admonish in all wisdom does not mean that you have to be a wise guy, a a sage personality type, or be overly wise in a worldly definition, or have gray hair and a pointy hat, even though I would like one. No, to teach and admonish in all wisdom means very simply to teach and admonish in and through and for Jesus Christ without any additional trappings of what it may mean that you think it might mean to be wise. In fact, when you begin to think, well, I I have become wise, you probably shouldn't teach or admonish anybody. The word of Christ and making him preeminent through it is not just the content of our teaching or our admonishing But everything about the teaching and the admonishing must be in Christ. For he himself is the wisdom of God. And I struggled to find an analogy to help make this clear. Um, Here's my shot at it. Imagine after your shower or bath, um, instead of spraying yourself with your favorite cologne or perfume, you just take the cap off and just pour it on yourself. And so before you enter the room, people can begin to know that you're present by your aroma. That is what the word of Christ needs to be in your teaching and admonishing. Should saturate everything. And why do I use that analogy? Because of the Bible from 2 Corinthians 2. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. And honestly, I think that indicates why we, we, we kind of avoid the word of Christ when it comes to dealing with the world. Because we're afraid of what it might show if we became the stench of death to death. It'd be too painful to see. And so we're afraid. So what does it mean to teach and admonish in all wisdom? To do all of your teaching by example and in word. To do all of your admonishing, urgent and loving, in a way that is so transfixed on Christ that to everyone the aroma of Christ cannot be ignored. And the fragrance of the knowledge of Him begins to enter the room before you do. That's what it means. Is that discouraging or daunting yet? And that is why I think Paul follows up that statement about being the fragrance of Christ to God with this statement, who is sufficient for these things? So even Paul says, it's all of God's grace that I could even have this effect. 
And then he follows up that by saying this. He says, For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak Christ. So you can very quickly teach in the right way and admonish in the right way with all wisdom if you just plainly and simply, with integrity, speak Christ. So, how shall we then live? If you're paying attention, if you're used to my preaching, you notice I just kind of passed over the one another statement, which is odd, but I didn't want to beat a dead horse, as it were. But I do want to give you on the topic of one another. How shall we then live? What are some things that we need to do in order to obey this as we teach and admonish one another? I want to give you three hard questions, three things to understand, three things to pray, and three things to do. So that's to make it a little less daunting than 12 points of application, right? (laughs) Three hard questions. Do you believe that you are to give this Do you believe that this is for you, a command for you to teach and admonish your brothers and sisters? Do you call on the Lord Jesus? Then it is for you. This is your job. Number two, do you believe that your brothers and sisters need it from you? You believe that their spiritual good depends on you obeying this command? Number three, do you believe that these brothers and sisters, those you have covenanted with in church membership, are the ones to do this for you, to teach and admonish you? Or do you go elsewhere to find it? Your favorite teacher online, your favorite author, another church maybe. Three things to understand. One, you are already teaching Sarah, I can't say her original maiden name because I forget it, but who became Sarah Edwards. This is how the great Jonathan Edwards spoke of her when she was 13 years old. God fills her mind with exceeding sweet delight. She hardly cares for anything except to meditate on him. You could not persuade her to do anything wrong or sinful. If you would give her all the world, lest she should offend this great being. 13. She was teaching even the great Jonathan Edwards how valuable God was by her example and life. And instead of studying Greek, he was writing that about her. Number two, understand this is for you. This is not just for teachers, ministers, preachers, prophets, whatever, evangelists. Your job is to teach and admonish your brothers and sisters. Number three, I I, I can't underscore this enough. There is no greater privilege than to help the people of God make it home safely through teaching and admonishing them in all wisdom to know and embrace the word of Christ. There is no greater privilege. You could ransack the world for any profession, any career, any different version of any career, any vacation destination, any retirement package that you could ever want. And there is no more greater privilege than being folded into God's own will and plan to bring his sheep home safely. That's what these commands equip you and license you to do. Three things to pray. Pray that the Lord would give you knowledge of the word of Christ. 
You can't do either of these unless you know what it is. Number two, pray that the Lord would give you a simple confidence and clarity to speak of Christ. Right? Just, just as Paul says, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak Christ. Just confidently speak of Him. And you've done your job for the most part. Number three, pray that the Lord would put His love into your heart and anoint you with the fragrance of Christ in your thoughts and actions. Three things to do. Number one, take advantage of at least some of the things that we are trying to do as a church together in order to keep this command and all the other one another commands. There's a lot that's made available to you. I won't list them all. You know them. They come to your inbox every single week. Number two, do not show partiality. I want you to consider this. Statistically speaking, unless you're a teenager or in your 20s, those that need rescuing are not your age group or life stage. It's easy to be a member of a country club. It's very hard to be a rescue worker. Your job, dear Christian, is to be a rescue worker. Christ came to us, not because we were like Him, but He became like us. He emptied Himself and took on the lowly form of a servant to give His life as a ransom for many. Not to put too fine a point on it, brothers and sisters, but your salvation depended on Jesus not being satisfied to hang out and spend time with people that were like Him. Number three, ask for help. If you don't know where to start, if none of this was clear to you, which is possible, um, if you've realized that by this description of the gospel, you don't even know it, you haven't come to embrace the word of Christ at all, then ask for help. Because, not because we are competent for this thing, but the gospel is there and Christ himself has made it available to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that we've had to discuss your word. I pray that it would be something that goes down deep into our hearts, that we would listen and obey for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.